Welcome to Vulnerability Hangover, the show where the only goal is authentic connection through vulnerable discussion. The rules? It's safe to be open, honesty is required, and kindness rules the conversation. The suggestions? Listen well, feel fully, and try to have some fun. Now introducing your host, Anthony Rita. Today's conversation is with Ian Martin, an old friend and colleague. Ian and I lived and worked together in Los Angeles when we both graduated college and were starting our careers and cutting our teeth in sports television. If there are two main phrases to keep in mind during this conversation and two things that I explore, the first would be that everybody needs therapy and the second would be people are people. And if you have more questions about those two statements, stay tuned. We're going to dive in in depth. Ian is incredibly thoughtful and incredibly open. And I'm truly appreciative of this conversation and the things that he shares. So without further ado, a conversation with Ian Martin. My guest today is Ian Martin. Dear friend, Ian, how are you? Welcome to the show. Thank you for joining. Uh, I'm well, and uh, I apologize that I'm going to probably call you Rita most of the time, even though I know your name is Anthony, but you'll always be Rita to me. So That is okay. I am Rita to many, many people, so fear not. I will dive right in. I'll start how, how I always do. The better version of the worst question. And so, Ian, I ask you, why do you do what you do? I do sports and I love sports and I think it's as much a fear of not knowing what I would do with myself if I didn't do something in sports. It's straight down to my first word as a child was ball. My mom will tell you that. Uh, and it just kind of took off from there. And I always was watching sports. I think my dad would tell you I learned to read from the comics and the sports section of the paper more than any book. And uh, that just turned into both playing sports. And then when I realized I wasn't going to make the NBA, probably by about fifth or sixth grade, what else can I do in sports? And, uh, you know, I give a ton of credit to my parents who we were fortunate enough that they had the resources to kind of steer me towards sports and let me explore what else was in the sports world. And I think even from a non-sports perspective, doing television, I am also just the kind of person that I like new. I like deadlines. I like the idea that not every week will be different. And again, you know, routine is for some people and there is partial routine to it. There is some sort of organization rhythm to it, but ultimately whether it's a NASCAR race or a football game or a soccer game, there's going to be a different storyline and a different hero and a different villain almost every week. So I think that's where I find myself still interested, even though I feel like I've been working in sports since before I was getting paid to work in sports. So absolutely. There's uh, what what's the adage you prep all week and then suddenly a game breaks out. Yes, absolutely. And I always say eight hours of work for 20 seconds of television, you know, and, and you know it as well as I do. We've been in the, in the trenches together and it's just, you you can work you can work eight hours in something that just isn't relevant after the first inning and it doesn't air and you know after a while you just realize that's the way it is the the cutting room floor reel has so many gems yes 
Yes, we, we, you probably air 10% of, you know, I've, I've worked on a lot of video things now and you probably actually air 10 to 20% of the videos you actually have ready on a given broadcast. But when that situation happens and you have that game-winning field goal that's very specifically relevant, I mean, that is a, as big of a fist pump as the guy that made the field goal. Truly, truly. I will follow up with, and you sort of touched on this in your, in your description, but how did you get to where you are today? What was your path? Yeah, so I was an avid reader as a kid and I, was in, I enjoyed writing and my mom is an English teacher. So that's always been uh, not optional for us to be uh, readers in my family, my sister and I. And I tend to like to talk a lot. And that also was a factor in that, you know, initially, I think uh, you know this too, that the 90% of people that work behind the scenes in TV thought they were going to be broadcasters. Yes. And I was absolutely one of those people. I was, I'm going to be Joe Buck. I'm going to be Bob Costas. And I want to do play by play and I'm going to be the voice of this team for 40 years or whatever. And that was kind of how it started. My parents sent me to a broadcasting camp between sophomore and junior year of high school. And that was the first time that I really felt what this job could tangibly be outside of playing sports or being a coach or something that's works for the team, you know, but being on the media side of sports, the university of Tennessee, Bob Kessling, who's been the voice of the Vols for a long time, Bob Kessling's big orange broadcasting camp. And it was an awesome weekend. I got to meet Pat summit, which is just so crazy to say in retrospect, that's awesome. I got to do, you know, got to film a stand up in Neyland stadium over a hundred thousand. It wasn't full, but over a hundred thousand seat stadium, you know, when you're a junior in high school, that's about as cool as it gets. I remember leaving that weekend and when I was thinking about it before this podcast, I was, I remember being in the airport going home that weekend and I had a sickness in my stomach for the first time in my life because I didn't want it to end. So, and the kind of sickness that I feel like I've only felt after, you know, a breakup or something before where I was just so, I had had such a good time for three days. I would, I had had such high highs and I'd seen all these things that I just wanted to keep exploring and then it, and then it was over. And after that, I, I went back to my high school, which was a very small high school. And that was kind of fortunate because there wasn't a lot of established mechanisms in place. But as as I've discovered, you know, that's a situation where you, that means you can create whatever you want. It doesn't you don't have to work within the existing frame of the student radio station or whatever. So I appealed to the school athletic department and bought some broadcasting equipment and I was broadcasting high school field hockey and volleyball and things like that. It was a such a vintage setup. It was literally plugging, dialing a cell phone, flip cell phone, LG, you know, those LGs that came two for one free that we all had in high school. And you would uh it was this device called a flip jack that was a really small mixing board and you would plug that into the cell phone and that was what it was broadcasting out of. So basically that was onto an online website streaming you know, kind of before the streaming Twitch, you know, now you just do it on Twitch if you're a high school kid or something like that. But this was, we had to pay some guy to set it up and dial the switchboard lines and all this stuff. Yeah. And then that just led to two years of experience that a lot of people, I remember, and then, you know, you have to have that moment where you actually realize that you think you're decent at something. Right. And I remember this kid walking up to me in high school and not that we were, he was ever mean, but just, you know, somebody I didn't really talk too much. And he walked up to me after one of those broadcasts and he goes, Hey man. So my sister was playing a field hockey game yesterday and I decided to tune in and I'm not, I'm not going to lie. I thought you were going to suck and you didn't. So keep it up. <laughs> you didn't suck. I th yeah. I thought you were going to suck. And I was like, all right. Yeah. For a high schooler, for a high schooler, that's about 
that's a 10 out of 10. Yeah, and I went from there and, and applied to um, University of Iowa is where I ended up going. And one of the large appeals of that school to me was that the student newspaper and the student television station are the same entity, whereas that's not the case at a lot of schools. So there's no rivalry. And in fact, they really encourage multimedia. Yeah, you know, you're, you're writing a print story. You should choose some video for it and uh, vice versa. So uh, just they were really ahead of that, in my opinion, thinking of, of how to have us not just have one skill, have the entire gamut of media training, if you will. But yeah, so it's just, it's, it's really, it's just kind of the thing where you just start and then now I'm 30 and I just go, oh, wow, I've really been doing it. Even though I wasn't getting paid for it in high school and college, I, I, I still count those as years of experience because you're still covering games and calling games and, you know, doing camera for Iowa softball and things like that. And that's all years of experience. And this is not an industry where you necessarily need to go to college to do it. Frankly, it's it's the kind of industry where it is entirely about how much of it you have done before. And the earlier you can get your hands on anything, even if it's you going out there with your cell phone and shooting highlights of a field hockey game and cutting them yourself in iMovie, that's still more than somebody else is doing. Yeah, it's just really kind of never look back after that. Yeah, it is so much of... Have you done this before? Or do you know someone who trusts you enough to let you try this the first time and then yes. keep going? Yes. And and a lot of the times it's like the, um, I think of like the Simpsons intro where they have Maggie driving and the fake driver's wheel and then Marge is actually driving the car. And I think that's a lot of our first time with somebody said, here's a camera. It's not getting on air, but here's a camera. Mess around with it. And I'll tell you what you did wrong afterwards. Yeah. And you know your white balance is all off, and you're and you're not focused, or you you have auto focus on. That's always a big first cardinal sin. That's a yeah. Yeah. And so the background's clear, and your interview subject isn't. You just start to figure it out, and it just becomes inherent, like any job. It's just you're you're gonna make a mistake, and you just try not to make the same mistake twice, and all of a sudden you're an expert, and you don't even realize it. Sounds about right. We'll do the big reveal. What do you do? So I currently am an associate director, mostly for Fox Sports in Los Angeles. Fortunate enough to work on a lot of national broadcasts. Past season, I worked with a college football crew. Um, we did eight games because of COVID. Hopefully, to get a full schedule this coming year. And then um, I also work on NASCAR currently, which I knew nothing about when I got the job, to be very honest. They knew that. But I work on NASCAR on Fox, uh, mostly on the Xfinity and Truck Series in a capacity, editing tapes and um, helping with play out of tapes live. And I've actually found it to be really fun. And uh, I really enjoy NASCAR now. And there's something about cutting your teeth on a sport that you also have to learn the sport from scratch. You know, it's a little different when I love college football. You know, I've been a diehard Iowa Hawkeye fan since birth, basically. It's not, it was not an option in my family. And and so there's, you're passionate, you're excited to work on it, but I think I, I'm pleased with myself that I've really embraced NASCAR, which I literally did not know if they turned left or right. If you had put a gun to my head and said, left or right, what is it? I would have thought of, I probably would have said left, I would have had to think about it. <laughs> and then now it's truly, I'm texting memes to people of, not even drivers, of crew chiefs. <laughs> You can speak to this as well as me, but it's not necessarily a business of intelligence and talent entirely. Passion and and willingness is 
you know, it's that saying of hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard. And that is as true, if not more true in media and in particular sports media, because it's a very valued, it's, you know, it's not the always emotional burden that say doing news is. We always used to say that, you know, it's not like we're screwing up casualties. You know, if I got a graphic wrong when I used to do graphics, it was 20 yards instead of 200, which is a mistake. And I was upset with myself, but at the end of the day, it's not consequential to the entire world. So we, we have to, we keep that in mind and, but you treat it with a seriousness that you, that, that, that is appropriate. And it's, it's just something you can't lose your passion for. Otherwise it's, it's going to go downhill pretty quick. Absolutely. And, and that's, that's an interesting point right there because even when you said why or I want to ask why you do what you do and you said I, I really love it there's there's a passion there there's also a fear of what you would do without it and I really feel I, I completely agree that if if there is not a passion there the amount of work if you do eight hours for 20 seconds of video or if you prep for an entire week and then suddenly there's a lightning storm and the game that you're doing gets canceled it can it can wear on you and it's a lot of nights and weekends and holidays and that is a huge reason that I wanted to to get out. It's it's such an interesting thing that I'm especially, you know, I've, I've been thinking on it more and more now. It's like, what am I, I'm trying to do something else. And I'm kind of figuring out how to do that and kind of not. But I knew that I didn't want to do that forever. And I knew that I didn't want to do sports broadcasts forever, kind of from the start, which was an interesting place for me. Because it is it's a lot of it's a lot of work. It's a lot of effort really high quality expected of you very tight deadlines first pitch is when first pitch is and if you're not ready they are yep game game is going to happen we we had a nascar race uh last night where we had to go to commercial break due to technical issues and the cars are still on track you know we are not yeah. we are not stopping the cars and saying hey can you wait to restart lap 45 until we're back you know we had a satellite issue it was out of our hands somebody went to to break we came back and apologize but the cars were still moving and that's there's nothing we could do about it it's the reality of the situation <laughs> exactly exactly so the passion and the effort is is entirely true if someone if someone's willing to work a little harder they will move on for sure sports and television and media in general is really tough because it's subjective you cannot go to your boss and say here's the amount of viewers i brought in this year you know, it's not like finance where you go, look at quarter four. That was me bringing in X dollars. And so I've cut things that I was really proud of that I showed up to the truck with. And the director said, I think that's terrible. And your first year in the business, you go, well, that must suck. And now I'm like, no, it's good. He just doesn't get it. Now, there's a fine line of you can't be a hard-headed egomaniac. I and mean, we certainly know plenty of those in television as well. But at the end of the day, it's it's having that confidence in yourself, which we'll, we'll get into a little bit more later about how I got there. But just you, you really switches after you just do it for so long that you are confident and you know, no, this is I this is what I wanted to do, or this is the message I was trying to get across, or or quite simply, in my case, a lot of the time, it's I do think this is funny, even if you don't, and you're not really the audience that's going to think this is funny. But I know there's an audience out there that will think this is funny. You know, we cut an original song for one of the drivers this year that Twitter was very split about but the fact that people were talking about it was kind of the point you are in the national 
broadcast world. You also travel for events. The regional broadcast world would travel for events as well. COVID brought that to a halt. And now we are moving into an era where you don't need to travel. And any incoming away team will use whatever facilities and studio is in the home market and they won't travel anybody. Is there any sort of leaning toward that on the national level or is it still going to be, you're going to go, you're going to bring your crew, you're going to set up a truck? It's it's kind of halfway. I don't think that, I think we're still a, a decade away from a permanent control room in a stadium that you just drop into every week and, and without getting too deep into the weeds, but there's you know, different networks have different settings, whether it's technical or even just down to this director likes to sit in this room, but the CBS director likes to sit in this room on this kind of chair. And that it does make a difference for whatever reason, you know, it's, it becomes the kind of thing to the earlier point of subjectivity. It's a job that not everybody does the same way. Nobody does it the same way. You know, some guys, my job, some guys have three stopwatches in front of them. I don't have a single stopwatch in front of me. I try to read all of my timings off of, off of the screen. Um, and, you know, and neither of us is wrong. It's just different. So to that point, there are certain things that require you sending a group out there. But for NASCAR right now, I have done nine NASCAR races this year without leaving L.A. And so it's really kind of the inverse for national where we are having permanent control rooms set up in Los Angeles that the technology is just remotely getting back to us and they're figuring out the delays. You know, there's about a half second delay on the headset. So when the director says roll the tape, it's really about a half second pause between when that happens and the tape actually rolls. But the kind of thing that you or I can pick up very instantly, but frankly, most people at home probably have no clue. So it's it's becoming permanent. And I think that the the one, the story that they're going to tell, and this is not to say that it's wrong, is that the narrative let's say it this way. The narrative 20 years from now is going to be that COVID did all of this. And that's not true. COVID accelerated what was inevitable. And it is, it's based on technology. I mean, just the the concept of, you know, we're going to move a truck from Phoenix to Denver to Milwaukee just to do these various games. You know, it's, it's obviously there's a business around it, but it's probably not the most cost-effective way to do things if you really think about it. So Certain people are still out there. Obviously, you, you get your camera guys are still out there. Your audio guys are still out there. Your engineers who can fix things for the camera guys and audio guys are still out there. And then the producer and director are out there. And a lot of that is is um, because the producer wants to be with the talent who also, you know, they're, they need to be out there. And I don't think that we'll ever be in a place for bigger games where, you know, Joe Buck and Troy Aikman are calling a game from L.A. I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. In general... It's kind of, there are certainly jobs that they are getting more and more. And I can only really speak to Fox, but but there are jobs that are becoming more and more. Um, you might not have to travel, even though you're doing a game and it might even be an international event. I mean, I've done that before. I've done games in South Korea for soccer where, you know, we're not doing the feed ourselves, but, but we're doing graphics for a game at 2 a.m. in L.A. that's really airing, you know, that's really happening at 8 p.m. in Korea or whatever it would have been at the time. So it's, it's. It's something that I think was coming anyways, and COVID just kind of forced people to reckon with it sooner than they would have. Frankly, I, I you know, from a, a personal perspective, it's not the worst thing that ever happened. Uh, just as someone that traveled pretty much, 
you know, pretty, pretty heavily for about five years. Now I've got the schedule where I'm still traveling for football, but I'm not traveling for NASCAR, but I'm still working, which is great. So it's, you know, you feel like you have a little bit more of a, a life in wherever you actually live, as opposed to that just being kind of HQ. Good. A little bit of balance, a little bit of balance, which is tough to find. Um, yeah. Especially, especially in that industry. It's yes. Constant battle. I want to shift gears a little bit mm-hmm. and shift into, you mentioned kind of getting confidence and wanting to touch on that. This is just something that I remember us having a conversation years ago and you essentially saying everyone needs to go to therapy. Everyone needs therapy. What's the rationale, be- which I agree with, by the way, but what is what is the rationale behind that? Well, and, and I, I will start by saying this, that obviously not everyone is in a position to afford therapy uh, and, and you know, a lot of it's based on your insurance and things like that. So that is uh, the unfortunate truth of, of the United States. And so I'm, I'm lucky that I'm in a position where I can see a therapist every week or every other week when I want to. And the therapy might be different for different people, but therapy is like anything, or you're going to get out of it what you put into it. And I've been with the same therapist for about five years now. And I I told her last week, I go, you know, I kind of realized the first two years I told you nothing. I thought I was telling her stuff, but I was not telling her anything. I was, I was telling her the stories that I wanted to hear about myself. I was not actually telling her about myself. I was trying to paint this picture. I was treating her like anybody else where I was saying, here's a version of me that I want you to see, as opposed to this is what's actually gnawing at me. But I mean, I'll, I'll start at the beginning. I had a panic attack for the first time when I was probably about 25. And it was just this combination of a bunch of things and uh, full disclosure, just because it's really funny. It actually happened during sex, which is uh, an almost, I've, I've never heard of anybody else having that situation, but it kind of makes sense. Your heart rate's up. And it also was a reason that I very, very frankly, didn't think it was happening. I just thought I was having a very prolonged orgasm. <laughs> it's a true story. You're not using my real name, right? Um, so, no. So, um, my girlfriend at the time, bless her, was she, was she was very good about it. And we kind of sat down and I spoke with another mutual friend of ours who had had panic attacks, who we won't name. And she said, yeah, that sounds like you had a panic attack. And it was just, you know, shortness of breath and I was dehydrated. And there was, I think the thing in, in retrospect is there was all these things that were changing in my life. You know, you had moved away and we were so close. And then our other buddy, Mark, had just moved away. He, we were so close. And then Romley was about to move away as another person I was really close with. And just kind of this very, very common um, kind of like late 20s exodus out of LA was beginning. And I was one of the few people that was staying and I was kind of having this realization of, well, I'm not from here. And everybody that I thought I was going to be friends with for 20 years out here is gone. And I had a girlfriend at the time, but I was traveling a lot and she didn't love that, and, you know, through no fault of her own. I, I don't know how she put up with it but as long as she did, frankly. And it just turned into this thing of, uh, you know, I, I, I sat down and I just kind of had to take a beat and say, you know what, I I'm probably depressed, or if I'm not depressed, I'm anxious. And it's something that, you know, depression does run in my family. And my my mother and sister both have been diagnosed and have dealt with it in various ways. And my sister especially has gone through a lot of therapy and it's really gotten her to a good place. And so I just finally said, okay, I'm going to go see a therapist. And 
we'll see how it works out. And uh, most people have to, and I would always preface by saying, you know, don't settle for your therapist. You always want to find somebody that you feel really comfortable with, whether it's a similar background or somebody that has a completely different background. So you can just really let off that steam of, and that's kind of the approach I went for. And I, I got really lucky. I really liked the first person I went to, but she is very different than I am in just how she approaches life. I can tell she's very organized. I'm pretty scatterbrained and I, you know, I'm, I'm a creative for lack of a better term. It, it, but there becomes this point where it's, you know, you kind of realize after a while that, especially when you work with the same kind of people that you hang out with, which is very true when you work in sports TV and when you're in LA and you work weird hours, so you just end up hanging out with the people that have the same off time as you, which is your coworkers, um, that you just kind of are the same person all the time. And that's not to say that you're putting up a front, but just that there's more to you than that person and or there's more to be explored about what you could be than that person that you are and and also some of this is just age you know i mean i'm 30 now and i was 25 26 when i had my first panic attack i had one more after that which was just a, a hangover combined with being late for a flight basically that happened in new orleans i had to pull over on the side of the road and just take a take a second and even before that actually i i i tried antidepressants that was the first step actually i tried antidepressants for about a month and I hated them, but that's not to say that they won't work. That, that, that they don't work. Some people, they are, they're good. But I think the misconception is that they're uppers that they, that they're going to make you happy. And it's not, it's, a, it, it numbs you. It's, it's basically an emotional painkiller. So yeah, one of the very, like, always everything in life comes back to sex. The, one of the common things when you're on antidepressants is they say that, that sex is very blah. And I noticed that uh, it just was very, not that it wasn't not fun, but it just was kind of whatever. And that's what I, I did a month on antidepressants. And that's just, I just feel like everything was whatever. And I would wake up and I wasn't excited for the day, but I also, you know, I guess I, I realized I'm the kind of person that I do need the, you know, the high highs and I do need the low lows so that the high highs are worth it, you know? And, and, and Rita, I'd say you're the kind of person that I, I've always, one of the things I've appreciated about you as a friend is you're very willing to lean into your emotions. I think that's something that I was not willing to do quite a while. And it's, it's not necessarily that I was this, you know, hyper masculine, you know, I was never, uh, you know, in the powerlifting club or anything like that, but there are different, uh, types of masculinity and machismo that are very much ingrained both within our industry and our country, frankly, that are, it's, it's the kind of thing that you don't even realize you're doing until you get it pointed out to you or you stop doing it and you go, well, why was I doing it? Why was I like that for four years or whatever? So I'm kind of, I'm off the track of therapy now, but just generally, yeah, that's kind of where I got there. That makes a lot of sense. And that's, that's so I read, I love this book. It's the gifts of imperfection by Brene Brown and talks about numbing feelings and how you can't numb just one. If you numb any feeling, you're going to numb all of them. And so if you are trying to escape the quote-unquote negative or bad feelings, you're going to numb all the good feelings as well. And I, it's, a, it's a journey for everyone. It was a journey for me. I've gotten progressively better at leaning into emotion and feeling what I'm feeling. But for a very long time, definitely numbed uh, everything. I smoked a bunch of weed. I just smoked weed all the time. And Ditto with yep. you. Uh, <laughs> Often. Yeah. We'll leave it at that. We'll leave it at that. And there was this sense of why, why am I, why am I doing this? What is, what is, how, how have I gotten to a point where now feeling 
high. One, you don't even really feel that high. There's not like the giggly, this is fun. This is like an improvement. I'm really hungry or whatever. It's just a, a new state of being, essentially. It becomes the new normal. Yeah, it becomes the normal. And then being sober is a trip. Right, right. <laughs> and I remember going to my first concert sober in like six years, just being like, wow, this is really fun. This reminds me of and high school And you actually concerts. remembered the entire thing. And I remembered the entire thing. Yeah, so so I guess maybe to get back back on the track of of therapy, you, you before before we started recording, you said that you know what works yes. for you, but it might not be the same for everyone. Well, I guess obviously there's not a, a one size fits all version of therapy. No, and and I think the thing I would say about therapy to someone that's never done it before is it's far more self-guided. You're not sitting on the couch and they're not asking you question after question after question and you're saying yes or no or whatever. That's the first interview. The first session is always like that because they don't know you and they want to get to know you and they want to know your background and they're trying to pick up the little things of, okay, and when was your last girlfriend? Oh, interesting. You know, and they're writing it down. But pretty much every session starts with, so what's on your mind? And then you just go. And I'm a pretty talkative person. So there's times where I'll talk for 10 minutes before my therapist stops me. And she goes, okay, what I heard five minutes ago was this, but then you just said this. And those two things don't seem like they match up. So how did you get from one place to the other or vice versa? And the other thing that, that I think the reason that therapy for me personally works so well is I have realized that I am a verbal processor. I am the type of person who I can have things rattling around in my brain, but until I say them out loud, even when I'm home alone, I find myself talking out loud, talking through things out loud all the time. And a lot of the times when you're in therapy, I think this is what happens for a lot of people is you're, you're about 80% there with a thought of this person bothers me so much and I don't want them to, or I was feeling really sad and then I wasn't, but I'm not sure how, what got me out of that funk that day. But then they start prodding a little bit and you start talking about it and you go, okay, well, I did this and I did that. And, you know, maybe I should value this person a little bit more as a friend because they really are always there for me and I'm recognizing their value in my life and things like that. This is just a personal thing, but I, I recommend this to everybody is she said that, you know, with technology and everything, especially working in technology. And, and I saw this meme one time that just it's seared in my brain that says spend all day at work looking at big screen to get home and watch little screen. And it was a guy in his in his in a bed on his phone. And I was like, that is, oof, that cuts, you know, just get home, relaxing, you know, well, how do I want to relax? Well, I'm going to open up my computer and watch more TV after I was making TV for eight hours. So something that uh, my therapist recommended, which I have found to be awesome, is she said, find a hobby that is tactile, but also has tangible outcomes, because I like to see progress. So the two things that I've certainly since we've uh, you know, live together that I have gotten much better at are cooking because it's just very therapeutic. You were always a nice cook. So I, I took a lot from that. I actually think I still use your crock pot. Nice. Yes. My legacy lives. Yes. It's, it's still in LA. You put on podcasts, chop up, you know, the chopping of everything that, the, you know, kind of the experimentation of it's very fun. And then the other thing that I started doing because I'm, you know, 80 years old at heart is I, I always have a jigsaw puzzle going. And it's just on the table and I might not touch it for a week sometimes, but if I just am really stressed or if I'm on a call that I don't really have to be super listening into and I'm just kind of bored, but I know I need to pay attention a little bit, I'll just sit there and work on the puzzle. And it's the kind of thing where over the course of a month it starts to come together and 
it's just a good way to unwind that does not have to do with technology, but I can see progress being made. And I think that's something that, you know, I think a lot of people, the problem nowadays beyond depression is you're always measuring yourself up against other people. And that's social media and that's America, frankly, is there's always someone more successful than you. And if you're not at the top, you're not doing well enough and that type of thing. So I think that, you know, having something, whether it's food or a puzzle that, that has a result that has a, you know, and even if the food wasn't perfect, well, I can make it again tomorrow or in a week and it'll be better. And, you know, now I've got my pad tied down. I've got my chili down. I've got, you know, a couple of vegetarian recipes. I've got my snacks, you know, I've got, I've got some stuff down that I feel really confident in. And it just furthers your confidence in every other aspect of your life when you are confident in, you know, the things that are yours. The cooking thing is fantastic. I love it because it's iterative and I love the idea of having something at the end that's tangible. It's like, I made this and I am now I'm eating it and hopefully it's delicious. But if not, I know how I can fix it and tweak it. If I, if I cook a meal for you, like, I love you. That's a, that's a very tangible, like, I want to do this for you. This is, this is yours. And that's the difference between me five years ago and now. It's five years ago, if I would have cooked, I would have done it because I wanted someone to say I was a good cook. And if I cook for someone now, it's because I genuinely want them to be full. I genuinely want them to be satisfied. And that's what satisfies me. Doing things for other people is a huge one. I did a lot of things that I thought other people wanted me to do that if I did them, they would like me more. Uh, that does not work. That's, that doesn't work. We both saw each other do that in relationships too, frankly, of, of doing that thing where even with someone that you've been dating for a while, you think, well, they normally act like this. And then, so I should do this because then they'll do this. And it was something I went through in my last relationship. It didn't work out for other reasons, but I think something that we were really good at was just say it, just say it. Just, if you have a question, just ask. And if you, you know, and I, that's the other thing. And, and that, that starts to translate to other parts of your life where that time at work that you don't really want to speak up because if you're wrong, you're going to kind of look like an idiot. But that 5% chance that you're right is going to save the television show. Say it, say it. And they're like, nope, it's already fixed. Don't worry about it. Why are you even inserting yourself? And then you're just like, okay, well, I'm glad I'm, I wanted to say something because if I didn't, I would have felt bad if something was wrong when it happened. So it's the same thing. And when you're in a relationship and even with just your friends of just, you know, hey, I didn't really like the way you talked to me last week in front of other people. Like, what, what was that about? You know, instead of just saying, well, they were probably in a bad mood and, you know, they were in a tough time that week. So I'm just going to let it go and what have you. So, and I think, you know, I, you know, you and I both, both went through that with, with various people in our lives. Yes. Yes. And there's so much of just don't assume, just let the other person answer the question. They know, they know the answer. You don't. Yes. You don't, you don't have the answer. You don't have the answer unless they've said it. I resonate a lot with the idea of saying who you want to be versus being who you want to be. And this is, I've had, I had many conversations with different people trying to shift things and what, who, who do you want to be? What are you trying to do? What is important to you? Like, oh, connecting with people, fostering an authentic connection with people is really, really important to me. And then they ask, well, what are you doing with that? It's like, oh, well, I guess I don't, I don't really know trying to be really present with people in my life that I meet, but other than that. And so 
that's really some of the some of the inspiration for this podcast is how can you connect with people you can talk with them about real stuff and honest things and be open and be vulnerable and then then put it out there i think that that's something that you know the older you get and I saw some other thing the other day that was, you know, if you passed away suddenly your your office would have a job posting by the end of the month, but your friends and family would would sell pictures of you for years. And and that's just so true of you want to do your best at work, but you should not give yourself to your job or your employer. And I think that's another thing that I mean, how many people do we know in sports TV that their personality is I work for this company, I've done the Super Bowl. I've done, I have this many Emmys and that is their Tinder profile, basically. You know, that is their life. And that's what I'm saying. I don't love work. I don't love talking about, I love talking about my work. I love NASCAR, which is like, that feels dirty to say out loud, but it's true. I love NASCAR now. I really do. I've got my favorite drivers and everything, but I also am not putting my happiness into someone else's basket. I think that's really what it comes down to is if you are able to control a lot of your life, which is a matter of privilege, but if you are in a position where you can control a lot of your life, work is not the answer. Work is not the thing that is going to put you over the top. Work is not the thing that's going to get you out of the funk. And the money that you get from work is not what's going to put you out of the top. What you do with that money might get you into a better place a human being. Like I, I need to start doing some more international travel. I realize I've never been on a solo trip out of the country by myself. That's on my list this year, which again, I'm fortunate enough that I now have the means to do that. But it's not work itself that will give you that cookie. It's it's not. And I think that takes a lot of people a long time to realize. And some people, unfortunately, never realize it. I had uh, one last quick thing. And this is something that I remember hearing from you first years ago. And I first heard it and I was like, that is dumb. Like, what? of course, like, that's the easiest. Yeah. Like, what does that even mean? And as I've gotten older, I realized more and more the the depth of what this simple phrase is, but it is that people are people. That's it. It's, it's a, it's a similar idea of like, it is what it is, but it is such a place of almost like acceptance and peace that people are people. And that kind of going back to, you know, don't assume, and we don't know the answer to what someone is feeling or thinking unless we ask them. And there are so many experiences or circumstances that are informing how people are in any given time that we just don't understand and so i just wanted to I, I really just wanted to bring it up and say thanks for introducing me to that idea and if you had any you know now years later because i think i asked you like what does that even mean and you like had a good answer and i just didn't really listen to it it really comes down to two things which is one when i was when i was a kid and i wasn't raised super christian but i was you know we went to church and i was born in midwest where it was very common i think because of that i had this obsession until probably about midway through college, that there were good people and there were bad people. And some people were to be feared and some people were to be befriended. And I remember having a, a very long conversation with my college girlfriend, who I actually think you met when she visited LA one time. Shout out to her. She's cool. We had this very long debate about like, are people good or bad? And she just pounded the table and she's like, everyone fucks up. Everyone has their bad day. And sometimes the worst people in the world, if you want to think of them that way, a lot of those people are the people that will do anything for their family and they'll do anything for their mother. It's just that, you know, I think the only thing I would add to, to that is, you know, I, I rem another way I've heard it put that I think I, I now is kind of how I think of that phrase. People are people is I remember being in an Uber at like 4am 
um, leaving Seattle, which was the most fun weekend of my life after Iowa basketball made the tournament for the first time in ages. And um, I was in the Uber after just a drunken weekend. And I was telling, I had met this girl who I thought I was going to keep talking to and whatever, but I was uh, talking to the Uber driver and you know, you meet those people in your life that you're like, are you sure you're not like an angel or you're not like some sort of like, you know, messenger from God or something. And it was this um, Jamaican woman. And I remember her saying, you have no idea what that person's been through in their life. She goes, I don't know. Maybe they haven't, but maybe they have. And, and just, you do not know until the moment that you meet somebody. And even if it's your good friend and you haven't seen them for a week, you don't know what happened to them in that last week. And, and they might not be willing to tell you, and you can't assume that they are, just because I'm a very open person. I think that's the other mistake I used to make is I'm a very open person. I realize I'm probably more open than most people and that I need to allow certain people to get things out at their own pace. You know, you, you can't just ask someone and they're not always going to be willing to give you the answer. And that in and of itself is its own exercise of acceptance of, okay, well, this, I'm not the person they want to talk to about this. I'm not the person that they need to. Maybe I'm not the audience that they want to speak to, or for whatever reason, it's going to take them a second to process it, and then we'll talk about it at some point. So yeah, that's the, the only corollary I would add to the people of people is just that, yeah, you have zero idea what someone was doing even 30 minutes before. You, you can't assume anything about anyone. You don't know. You don't know. Uh, it's it's the same thing of, of I, always, I always think about this with sexuality too, of like, you know, everybody's like, well, who's into that stuff? You know, just think of anything in your brain, any fetish. Who's into that? Well, enough people that there's websites dedicated to it. And you probably know someone. And it might be your parents. So, <laughs> sorry. It's just the fucking reality. That's a perfect, that's a perfect end. That's a perfect end. Oh, my God. All right, my friend, we're going to go into recommendations. Love it. going to ask for a book, music, and a recipe. We will start oh, with... Oh, I thought you were going to ask for my fetish, my favorite fetish. We can, uh, Yeah, do you have a recommendation for a fetish? <laughs> well, uh, all I'm going to say on that front is, uh, you know, uh, uh, try everything once. Uh, you'd be surprised what you're into. No, uh, books, uh, my favorite author is Michael Chabon. If you've never read anything by him, start with The Adventures of Cavalier and Clay. It's very daunting. It's like 600 pages, but God damn it, is that a good book? Music, Hiatus Coyote is my favorite band right now but you and i both love the hip-hop and if you don't listen to currency we've been to a currency concert together still my favorite rapper still my favorite rapper after all these years nobody works harder nobody puts on more projects and they're all good and when you sit down and read the lyrics even without the music they could honestly be poetry at the time and cooking uh you know what i thought about this one and i was like oh i could do this like whole fancy recipe you want a cool snack in the summer it's going to impress your friends make shishito peppers it is my ace in the hole buy some shishito peppers at your asian market blister them for 10 minutes in olive oil salt lemon juice everyone's going to think you're a world-class chef it takes you 10 minutes that's my that's my recommendations bam there it is bingo bingo bongo done well ian thank you so much for joining thank you for this conversation it was fantastic yeah, man. Uh, let's uh, let's do this for real sometime. Uh, I know you're fully vaccinated, and I will be uh, in short order. So this will require an in-person uh, postmortem. Absolutely. That does it for today's episode. I hope the hangover doesn't hit you too hard. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. I truly appreciate it. 
If you have more time to subscribe, comment, or leave a review, that's very helpful for this podcast's success with the algorithm, the omnipotent algorithm. Feel free to find the pod on Instagram at vulnerabilityhangoverpod or on Twitter at podhangover. You can listen to this podcast wherever it is you listen to your podcasts. Special thanks to Alan Hirsch and Torin Westfall for original music. The rest is all me, Anthony Rita. Thank you again, and until next time, drink in that vulnerability. Thank you.